Hello, and welcome to the latest bonus episode of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest deck trends and strategies for a casual spike. My name is Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive, and with us are your usual hosts, Stan and Dave. Wow, what a privilege that was. Amazing. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad I got to do the intro. Always super fun. Shane is going to be so sad he missed that. Yeah, we, we typically have a third, but he is traveling right now. So it's just Dave and Stan holding down the fort. And who better than to fill in Shane's very large shoes than the one and only Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive. It's so nice to see you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, thank you for asking me. So I feel like Seth is the type of person who needs no introduction. Anyone who's listening to this episode of The Dive Down either found us through you or already knows you because we talk about MTG Goldfish. Everyone oh. in the Magic community certainly knows about you. But of course, you are the main content creator of MTGGoldfish.com, streamer, podcaster, influencer, tastemaker. I don't know about that, but I'll, I guess I'll uh, I'll accept. I, I do a little bit of everything. Uh, I got a tweet I want to talk to you about, Seth, oh, that okay. I think confirms your tastemaker status <laughs> that I saw about, about 40 minutes ago. So we'll talk about oh. that later. All right. All of these bonus episodes, Seth, start with a little warm-up session that we call Inside the Grinder Studio. Mm-hmm. And what I have are five, maybe maybe a sixth bonus question, lightning round. I'm just going to ask you these rapid fire. You can respond in one word answers. You can provide context up to you. But the okay. first thing I'm, I'm dying to ask, what's your favorite Magic the Gathering card? Uh, that's actually hard. Uh, it's either Blood Moon or Pandermonicon. You can't make me pick. Like those are, those are the two. Those are the two. Depending on my format and my mood, um, I go back and forth. But one of those two. I mean, I know why Blood Moon. It is one of the best cards of all time. Why Panharmonicon? I've just always had a soft spot for Panharmonicon. It's ever since it came out in Standard, I played so many decks with it. It's just like the dirtiest, valuiest card. It's it's not good. Uh, I think there was like one brief window in Standard before they banned Reflector Mage when it was like sort of legit and someone top eight GP with it. But it's never been a good card. I just always have nothing better than Panharmonicon into like Muldrifter uh, or Cloud Blazer or something like. I just love the play style. It's exactly my favorite way to play Magic. So, of course, we have to follow up what your favorite card is with what is your least favorite card. Oh, that's also a tough one. I think it's Luris, honestly. I, I'm a little bit a little bit uh, off that train because it's banned in all the formats I care about now. But really, the companion mechanic, oh, I just, I, I hate that mechanic. And Luris was the worst of the bunch. So, I think that's my, my number one least favorite card. I think that's a great and timely pick. I will say, we keep talking about the companion mechanic on the most recent episodes of the podcast, and I totally agree. What a mistake. Why Why did you do this? I, I don't know what Wizards was thinking on that one, especially if you actually go back and read some of like the articles on the Mothership. They actually posted a few articles like years ago about mechanics like that and how they really couldn't work because they would like destroy. There wouldn't be enough variants, and it would really hurt the game. And then I did it anyway for some reason, so I've never really understood why why they even tried it with companions and oh loris is just the worst of the bunch because it was everywhere and so strong yeah we're going to be unwinding that particular problem for a while let's we'll see where it goes from here (laughs) yeah seth do you have a favorite format it's modern it goes back and forth a little bit sometimes when there's like a new set release or sometimes they get in the pioneer mood or legacy mood but overall uh, i always come back to modern is that's kind of my standby Maybe you're aware Modern's our favorite format, too. When, when did you start uh, getting into Modern? When did you, like, what kind of captured you about the format originally? So I was, I was playing Magic uh, when Modern started. and So I started playing it kind of right away. And for me, as someone who loves to brew decks, Modern was, like, just the perfect format for me. It didn't have the huge barrier of entry to uh, that Legacy does. And you also didn't have quite as big of a card pool. Legacy has, like, you got to play Forceville, you got to play Brainstorm. Modern was, like, just this huge, diverse playground where it felt like everything was possible. And it started kind of right from the birth of the format, really. You just had so many different things. So it just was a real natural fit for what I like about Magic, which is brewing and trying different things and different strategies and decks. And Modern's just, like, the perfect place for that. I was not playing Modern when the format was birthed. I got into it after the fact. 
But my understanding is when Modern was created, there was like a format called Extended. Was it maybe Type 2 or something? I... Yeah. Type 2 is standard. But yeah, okay. go ahead. There, yeah, so there, there was Extended. Extended was like... It was like bigger standard, basically. Standard, did they change the exact card pool a few times, but it was like three years or five years worth of cards, but it would still rotate. Mm. So it was kind of like big standard where you still had to deal with the rotation, but you had more sets available than a standard format. And I never really played much <laughs> extended, honestly. I think there were times when it was good from what I've heard from people, but then towards the end when they made modern, it was really starting to kind of like drag in popularity. I think that's part of what led to to the birth of modern. Totally. Yeah, I was playing around the same time, too. And I, I actually spent some time playing Extended at different points in time, especially like around the era where you could still play like Tempest cards in it and stuff like that. And because um, there were some sweet decks from there, you know, Curse Scroll, etc. And um, I remember totally being excited about the fact that they finally might have nailed something that was less expensive than Legacy, but, you know, you could play for longer than standard. And, and I think that's worked, you know, when you look yeah. at the, the time across the time period of the format. Now, it's you know, sometimes it feels like it's become less of a brewer's paradise, but I do think that the great thing about what you do is that you always remind people that there is more to explore, I think, for sure, with the content that you guys put out on Goldfish and what, what you do on stream and everything. I definitely think, and maybe I'm sidetracking us in our lightning round, but I definitely think that Modern has become somewhat less of a brewer's paradise than it was like five years ago or 10 years ago when it first started. But I still think it's a brewer's paradise. Like, maybe it's not as good as it was at its peak, but there's still a ton of things you can do in the format. Yeah, maybe a lot of them might involve Modern Horizons cards these days, but there's still so many different archetypes and decks, and uh, there's so much to explore still. And one of the nice things, like, why there is a downside to Modern Horizons, putting, like, these really powerful cards that are kind of at the top of a lot of the decks in the format, there's also so many sweet cards that have come from Modern Horizons, which I think increase the diversity. Like, uh, a deck I've played recently, is like Karth Super Friends, which has popped up in a few like 5-0 lists. It's not a tier deck by any means, but that's an archetype that's really cool and it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Modern Horizons. So I, I think Modern Horizons gets a little bit of a bad rap to some extent because yes, it does decrease the diversity at the top of the meta, but it also puts all these wild like tier 3 decks into the format, which is kind of where I live in Modern. That's like my favorite place to be in the format. <laughs> awesome. We actually talked about that Karth deck a couple of weeks ago because it showed up in a 5-0 deck dump and we went through every deck in a, in a 5-0 drop a couple of weeks ago. And it, we got to that list and we were like, wait, what? Yorian <laughs> and Karth and like 20 Planeswalkers. And yeah, what an amazing uh, thing. Yeah, super fun. What's the biggest misplay that you remember that mattered to you? Could be from any time in your past. You know, maybe some, you remember something from the first FNM you went to. I remember one from a very early PTQ that I went to. What what what's yours? Oh geez, there's there's too many to count. <laughs> I have so many so many good puns. The one that sticks out the most is, and this is the Moto thing. I mostly play online. I've never been a super big paper player, but one that still comes up from years ago. I think it was just a Moto League I was playing, but I I managed to pithing needle my own pithing needle um, by typing <laughs> typing the wrong thing. So I named pithing needle with pithing needle, and uh, that one still that one still I get reminded of once in a while. I didn't even know that you could do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it is possible. I proved that it is possible to pithing needle a pithing needle. That's hilarious. It's incredible. Reading the card explains the card, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, last question. And I think so, this one's a little interesting because you may have coined a fair amount of magic slang. <laughs> do you have a favorite piece of magic jargon that mm. only us planeswalkers know? Uh, I use I use so much magic jargon. It's just like normal. If you're a magic player, it just kind of seeps into your vocabulary and you don't even think of it anymore. But one that stands out for me is definitely Dirtle. Dirtle's like one of my one of my favorite. I think that goes back to LSV actually, or some of the channel fireball guys, I think is where that started from. But that one's pretty uniquely magic and it fits my Panharmonicon deck. So <laughs> I'm a Dirtler. That's awesome. All right. So I did foreshadow this a little bit ago, like an hour ago. You put up a tweet about favorite albums, Ooh. and this is an epic thread of albums that you put up here. If people haven't seen it, go take a look at, at Seth's Twitter feed. Some of my favorites that are on the list, Velvet Underground and Nico, Moon in Antarctica by Modest Mouse, Pinkerton from Weezer. There's some Lost Classics on here, too. I, it seems like you might be someone from your brewing experience who loves a good Lost Classic, and oh. one album that's like that on here is Trout Mask Replica by uh, Captain Beefheart. 
combo loss classic, right? Yep. What do you think is your favorite magic lost classic? The card that you love to go back to that people forget about. I know we asked your favorite cards. Well, let's go one level deeper. Ooh. Or is there one you want to you that's on your radar that you haven't got a chance to try? Oh, that's a that's a really great question that I don't think I've ever even thought about before. So the easy answer is probably actually Panharmonicon, even though that's my favorite card. But that's still the card that even though it released five years ago now, I still like break out a deck with it, try to build a new deck around just because I love it so much. Um <clears throat> Another one for me would be uh, Sphinx's Tutelage. <laughs> Sphinx's Tutelage, the, yes. the card draw mill spell. That's yeah. another one that every year or two is like, I'm going to try this in modern. We got some new card draw spells. Like maybe it'll work this time. It never really does as far as being like super competitive. But I think that would be another, uh, another lost classic for me. Awesome. I love that you mentioned Sphinx's Tutelage because this is actually my origin story of how I first discovered MTG Goldfish was a Sphinx's Tutelage standard budget deck you did in that standard era. And it was like, I think you called it blue-white marshmallow control. Oh, and it was just yeah. a bunch of enchantments yeah. that just yep. created angels and slowed down the game. And uh, I remember that deck. That, oh, that was a long time ago. I haven't thought about that deck in a while. But yeah, that might have been my one of my first Tutelage decks that kind of kicked off my Tutelage obsession. Wow. Look at us. Plus, I mean, I just love drawing cards, and tutelage is like, that. it rewards you for doing that. All you got to do is play it and then draw <laughs> cards, and you might win the game accidentally by milling your opponent out. Well, thank you for that. I feel warmed up. I hope you do as well. Very warmed up. Ready to go. <laughs> so, all right. You're here. We want to make good use of your time. I, I want to understand who you are a little bit, because mm -hmm. you're this ever-present member of the Magic community. You're so generous with your time. Just in general, you stream basically every day. You put out all this content. But I also feel like you almost have an air of mystique around you, perhaps because you've been around for so long. And you're you're very much like all business with MTG. <laughs> when did you get started as a Magic player? How, what was that origin story like? So I started playing Magic. I didn't play when I was a kid. I went off to college. And I was doing kind of the music thing that was before I started doing magic. I like played in bands and that was kind of like my my hobby. And my roommate at the time showed up one day with this big box of magic cards. They were in his mom's basement, I think he played growing up or something. And I at first I didn't really like immediately jump in and start playing, but I watched him with these cards and I played some like strategy games going up. I also like poker. And the more I watched the game, I was like, wow, this reminds me of a weird different take on a, a lot of stuff that I actually really like. So then I started, you know, learning about the game, asked him about it, started building decks, and it kind of went from there. I played super, I mean, like most people, super casually. We were playing, like, you know, on the on the kitchen table, on the living room floor with a bunch of people. I built most of, this was around original Ravnica's when I started playing. So 2006 or seven, sometime in there. But uh, we had mostly mirrored and block cards. That must have been what he had from his collection. So the first deck I ever built was this, uh, charge counter eon storm deck it was absolutely horrible uh but it, it was essentially an against the odds deck you're trying to put charge counters on things and remove them to like shock things and it worked fine for casual play but then i remember we had this this other friend who i didn't know played magic but he was actually kind of like a spike and he mm -hmm. showed up with his collection and he had like scepter chant i don't know if you remember that deck or he had this like stasis deck he had like legit mm -hmm. tier extended decks and i'm trying to remove my charge counters and play my like eight mana arc bound crusher or whatever it was and he's just like oh yeah orbs chant on scepter like you can't do anything oh it's it infuriating like table flipping infuriating but that actually kind of got me hooked on the game because i had to figure out how to how to beat it. i knew there had to be a way where I could like beat this ridiculous lock piece. And I think that's really what got me hooked was like losing to stasises and <laughs> scepter chant locks. And that's what kept me coming back and, uh, and got me deeper into the game. And made you a stronger person. Many, <laughs> many people would have, would have quit in the face of stasis. Yeah. I think I, I know friends who did back in the nineties for sure, but uh, yeah. Oh, stasis is a, a brutal, brutal card. Yeah. When did you graduate from that kitchen table casual play and, and maybe like start playing online or even yeah. hit up an LGS for the first time? So that's what really it was really magic online that that pushed me towards. I don't know if I consider myself a spike, but towards more like spiky style of play. Also, like going to some pre-releases. This had to be. Oh, goodness. 
Lorwyn, Shadowmar, sometime around that era is when I started playing, playing more online, uh, and also like going to pre-releases and stuff. I never really got into the paper tournament scene, but Magic Online was like my competitive release where I could build like uh, more competitive decks, do drafts, do leagues, do things like that. So that's what really I think made me a better player. Really was being able to just jam infinite <laughs> games on Magic Online twenty four seven. So we're going to talk about MTG Goldfish a little bit later in more detail, but it's hard to talk about your output without discussing Goldfish, right? I'd love to hear what that genesis and, you know, that evolution has been for your career as a content creator. You'd mentioned on a really, um, on a recent episode of the podcast I was listening to how I think Richard discovered you because you're just posting Reddit stuff about MTG finance, more or less. Yeah. How long ago was that and, and how has that relationship evolved and really your your contributions to the website evolved since then? Oh, the, uh, it's definitely been a very interesting experience and ride because I never really set out to make magic content. Like that was never, I, I had finished college. I was thinking about going to grad school and I was just like buying some magic collections on Craigslist and flipping them to make some side money. And I started for my own knowledge i guess doing like ev calculations for sets because i love opening booster packs so i want to know like if I, am i gonna lose a ton of money if i crack some booster boxes of i can't even remember what set this would be this had to be like zendikar world wake like sometime in that in that era like 2010 ish uh and i started posting them on reddit and that's how richard found me richard had started goldfish but I didn't have content and he was thinking that he wanted to add content to the site. And I guess he must have liked my random EV posts and so forth. So he reached out to me uh, through Reddit actually. and was like, Hey, I'm, you know, got this site and I'm pretty sure I ignored his first, e his first <laughs> message. Cause I didn't, I didn't know what goldfish was or take it seriously. And I was just like, I'm just posting on Reddit. I don't know what this is about. So he actually wrote me again. And the second time I was like, okay, maybe this guy is like serious and I should actually talk to him. And so it went from there. That's how I met Richard started writing articles and when i started i was just writing random like mtd finance type articles there was no videos or anything like that it was just random articles on the site and it slowly and then quickly just kind of snowballed into uh, like what about some videos what if you do a budget magic series so i started doing that and then pretty soon there was multiple youtube series and other videos and then streaming and it just kind of over the course of the last oh my god I've, it's been so long now 10 years or however long it's been that i've been doing this uh, it's just kind of snowballed into uh, into what it is today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the site kind of started. Did the, did the site basically start as a financial site, like a place to track card prices, or what? What kind of functionality was there when when you kind of started so, with it? So the site actually started. Um, <laughs> for Richard's own use, really. Richard loves analytics. I also love analytics. And uh, he was big into analytics and he loves min-maxing games and so forth. So he went, actually wanted to make Goldfish a site that could like tell you what hands you should mulligan and more like gameplay focus. That was his initial attempt. And one of the things he threw up was card prices because he also wanted to know like it's PTQ season. When can I buy cards and sell my cards so I don't have to spend very much money to like get the decks I need. And the price part is what kind of like became most used on the site so that was like the early focus was the prices because that wasn't something that was uh, really super available at that point or uh, whatever so that's kind of how the finance thing started and then it, it kind of moved away from that like the prices and all that are still there but i kind of ended up moving away from the finance stuff once i started doing video content especially right. during like the early years of budget magic uh before magic arena was a thing i do a budget deck and the price of the deck would like double or triple on magic online and I, I just felt really weird about doing all this finance stuff because some people are like, oh, he could be like profiting off this. What if he's like buying a ton of copies of these cards and then making these budget decks to try to spike the prices? So I just like moved away from finance stuff more or less altogether just yeah. to stay really far away from <laughs> even the perception of that because that's not what Budget Magic or anything was about. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's funny because the way that I found Goldfish initially was looking for what cards i opened on in drafts on moto that were worth money so i would type in to google price of x card and goldfish was always started being at the it was like one day it wasn't there and then suddenly it was at the top like it was marlin bots was there and that's what i was looking at and then suddenly a couple months later 
Goldfish was at the top of every time that I searched. And I was like, this site is really not, I'm a graphic designer, by the way. So I was like, this site is laid out much more clearly than most of the other sites. It's, it's really nice. And I was like, it's very clear, like what cards are worth something on Moto so I can sell them and try to, you know, try to go infinite on draft as much as, as much as one can. And, uh, and then I noticed the, the articles and I was like, this guy saffron olive is everywhere he's everywhere he plays every deck i i think in the early days of goldfish i was like one of the only content producers really when it first started it was available uh, anyone could write articles richard's initial idea was almost to have it be like an improved reddit where there would be mm-hmm. more tools for writing articles and you could add charts and stuff but kind of anyone could write an article and then some of them would be featured on the front page but i was i was kind of like the only one making videos at least in the early years of goldfish so yeah my i, I at one point i was doing like pretty much daily articles and then some videos on top of it uh, in the early days and did you did you have like editing skills and stuff when you started or were you like i'm going to figure this out i'm you just you're like i'm going to make a video and so I guess since you did music, maybe you, you had you had you understood probably how the tools work, but a little bit from like editing songs and like doing band stuff. But I'd never really done video editing, never done any sort of like, like uh, website design or programming or anything like that. And which thankfully, Richard is that's really his end doing the anything technical on that end. But yeah, I'm pretty much just learned <laughs> as I went along, like I oh, got to make these videos and kind of stumble through. And eventually you do it enough times, you kind of get <laughs> better at it, I guess, the editing aspects and whatnot. Yeah. When was the moment when you realized I could be doing this for a while. Like, like when you're thinking about like, this is something I'm just kind of doing cause it's fun. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, wait, I'm doing this a lot. Yeah. Oh boy. At some so, point you must have called your parents and, and been like, guys, yeah. I'm a magic content creator now. <laughs> yeah. They, my parents have, they, they don't, they don't really understand. They're like supportive. They're super supportive. Like whatever you want to do type of thing, but they, they don't really know anything about magic. I think uh, definitely when I ended up being able to go full time, like that was, that was a big uh, mark on the roadmap or whatever. That's when I knew like, okay, this is, this is my future for the next so many years. But I think before that, like, I want to say the, actually the 34 rhinos against the odds deck. That was like the first video that that I did that actually like kind of blew up outside of just like our YouTube channel and people were talking about it on social media and Reddit. And then from there, the videos like got much more, uh, like a lot more popular, a lot more views kind of became a big thing. And I think that's when I was like, well, maybe this is actually something I could do because I just never had the expectation. Like I was, it was just fun. I love magic and I like writing articles and uh, making videos. So it was just like super fun. I was like, I'll do this as long as I can. And here it is. many years later and i'm still doing it so yeah and you're a creative person and it was just kind of like suddenly there's this outlet for your creativity and a place to share it that you know you you don't always know when that's gonna work right honestly in a lot of ways it reminded me of like playing music and writing songs and doing shows like uh, to me it's very very similar like building decks is very similar to writing songs uh, doing a video is very similar to like performing at a concert in front of an audience like so for me it felt pretty natural because it felt just like a different outlet like you said for that creativity that i was kind of missing after i stopped doing as much of the band stuff or whatever yeah last question i have can you remind people what was in the 34 rhino stack uh there there were many many siege rhinos <laughs> and then ways to copy siege rhinos and basically all siege rhinos and various clones to just uh, try to make as many of them as possible it's kind of a meme because that's when everyone was like talking about how overpowered siege rhino was and should it need to be banned so it was kind of a meme like can i what if i made a deck that was all siege rhinos could it actually win and it actually did reasonably well <laughs> yeah i definitely remember reading that article siege rhino good card someone should oh, build a deck with that one day ban cards until siege rhino is good yeah that's right i don't care about the format just ban cards until it's good (laughs) seth when you went full-time did you get a job title or do you have a job title now so i think my i think my actual title is content manager that never actually really comes up for anything but i think when i actually went full-time that's what it was technically called i don't think anyone's called me that since though (laughs) everything you've told me about actually reminded me of something that Dave actually might recall from an early guest appearance. I think it was like our first ever guest appearance in year one of the dive down. We had Ross Miriam come on Mm -hmm. and he said something that really resonated with me, which was when your hobby becomes your job, 
it makes your job more fun, but it makes your hobby less fun in terms of being a full-time magic player. Is that something that resonates with you? I think it, I think it does to some extent. Like I love magic. I love my job, but I remember before doing content, just like spending a week cube drafting, like probably 12 hours a day. I don't, I don't even know. Just like, you just can't really do stuff like that when magic's your job. You got to make the video, you got to do the article, you got to do the stream and maybe, you know, cube draft isn't that popular. So in some sense, I definitely can see that. Or like another way this impacts me is not being able to watch content i used to watch so much content watching lsv like do his thing or whatever and once you're making content and doing so much content it's really hard to find as much time to watch other people's content so i think that's true like i love magic just as much and i'm i love my job like i love what i do but i do think that it does in some ways take away from the fun a little bit when it becomes your job I even worry about watching other, even with our like small audience, worry about watching other people's content because I worry about barring too much from them, like subconsciously, because, you know, we're ostensibly, we're kind of a competitive podcast. We we try to help people get better at being competitive and we don't want to like, we want to develop the lessons that we try to share with people on our own. Right. And so yeah. it's hard to not, you know, when I think about stuff that I learned from like early episodes of limited resources or things like that, when I bring those principles up, I try to always make sure that I like cite them basically but also at the same time you know they're just part of how i think now and so it's sometimes it's hard to remember to do that too so it's kind of weird and i I used to try try to write music i'm not very good at it but it got to it got a little bit the same thing for me when i was in the periods where i was like writing songs the most or working with a band the most i would feel bad listening to other music because i didn't want it to influence what what we were doing yeah I mean, I think you can even say that with Wizards where like they're really careful about people submitting custom cards or like tagging them with custom cards on Twitter because they're designing the real cards and they don't want to, you know, be influenced or accidentally rip off you know, some custom card that someone made. So I think that's that's wise. Yeah. It, I mean, Dave, it didn't stop Led Zeppelin. I don't know why that should stop you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you manage, Seth, your MTG celebrity? You're such a positive force. You get countless tags on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of them come from fans, but we know like what hobby communities can be like. Sometimes there's bad actors. I never seem to think that it gets to you, or at least you never really convey that. How do you kind of manage your influence and in, in your position in, in Magic, and how do you stay sane, basically? <laughs> oh well i mean i think in some sense i'm i'm kind of lucky because i am just naturally a pretty positive person and i think that also carries over into my online life but that's just kind of who i am as a person i think one thing i learned is uh you just really can't interact with every comment on twitter and on social media that's something initially like you want to and that's what i want and when you have 500 followers i could but then eventually you have 50,000 followers and you just have hundreds of notifications and uh, I had to become okay with not being able to respond to every single thing. And I think that also works for whatever, you know, haters there are, negative stuff that comes a lot, uh, along. For me, I mostly just try to ignore it for the most part. Uh, and I don't know, trust that <sighs> if you're positive, hopefully that's going to run off, uh, rub off on other people and maybe even win over some of those people. So if I do have to interact with the kind of the dark side of social media or whatever. I just try to do it in the nicest way possible. And a lot of times uh, people don't know how to respond to that. If your goal is to come in and troll or whatever, and you're, you're met with a kind reply, like it kind of, it, make, it makes it hard to keep going if you're not getting that response you're looking for. Is it real? Is it hundreds of notifications? I've always wanted to ask someone who had like 50,000 Twitter followers. Like when oh. you open the app in the morning, is it just like, a little circle with 300 in it kind of or... uh, yeah. usually yeah if i unless i haven't really been doing much tweeting the day before there's usually yeah often hundreds or more thousands sometimes of notifications it's just like oh, all right i guess i'm not reading all these let's Clear. move on to the next thing yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. kind of yeah <laughs> man i'm glad we broke through the noise and actually got you to respond <laughs> to our twitter dm that's really how this started uh, yeah do you set goals for yourself as a magic player still, or are your priorities primarily content focus and entertainment focus, really making sure that the magic you're playing is fun for people to consume? At this point, it's really mostly focused on the content stuff. I always have in the back of my mind that someday I'd love to try to be more competitive just to see how far I could go uh, and see 
I don't know. Uh, the traveling of trying to like grind your way to a pro tour or something that just really doesn't appeal to me. But now that so much is online and there's so many qualifiers, I've always thought it would be kind of neat just to see like if I actually dedicated myself to the slightly more spiky side of the game, like how far can I go in that direction? Because uh, you really don't get that opportunity making content. But at this point, like I love what I do. I love streaming and hanging out with the awesome goldfish community and making videos. So that's really my, my focus. And I just, I'm not sure there's any way to do both at the same time and do both. Well, what are you doing when the camera's off and you're not playing magic? Oh, Usually playing, usually I'm still playing magic even when the camera's off. But uh, if I if I'm doing uh, doing something else, um, I still play music. I don't play in a band right now, but just for fun, like playing guitar, playing keyboard, or whatever is something that I like to do. I play other games sometimes. Uh, I've been playing Storybook Brawl recently, a game that like an auto battler that LSV's involved in. I love Civilizations, another mm-hmm. game that I've sunk way too many hours into over the course of my life. So, and plus I got my puppy and I just got a house last year so all that kind of stuff but there's always stuff with puppies and real estate should we do a property tax episode now (laughs) (laughs) it's too damn high what do you would you be a musician if you weren't doing mtg goldfish i don't know maybe i mean the, the thing with being a musician is it's really not that easy to make a make a living out of like I, I love playing in bands and playing shows. And I think music would definitely be more of my hobby if I had more time where I'd probably be in a band and playing shows and stuff. But as far as like making a living off of it, ah, who knows? It's uh, it's not the easiest thing to make a real career out of. All right. So I do want to pivot to mtggoldfish.com. Uh, mm-hmm. because I've always been impressed with it as a website. You know, Dave mentioned he's a creative director. I also work in digital marketing and analytics, and uh, I've worked on web design teams. And Goldfish is a really impressive artifact online. Do you know, I mean, Richard isn't here, so I don't want you to speak to anything you don't know, but how did it kind of get built in the first place? Like, is Richard a coder or did he hire someone to code it? Richard, uh, it's all Richard. Um, Richard worked, oh goodness, I want to say he was doing programming at Amazon or something when he, uh, or one of those, Microsoft, one of those, I don't actually remember, so don't quote me on that, but one of those big tech companies. So that's what he was doing after college, and he started doing Goldfish, just like I said before, for his own use, essentially, to uh, get his min-maxing finance stuff out, have a resource for himself. So he just built the site, he did all this stuff, and kind of went from there. I think at this point, maybe there's someone who helps him sometimes, but still, even at this point, Richard pretty much does all of all the back end stuff is is all him. What what do you think is kind of ne- next for for you all? So you have the the podcast and you have the the site and you're putting content out consistently for a long time. Is there anything you would want to share as far as the, kind of where where you're thinking you want to go next? There's there um hmm. That's actually, I don't know. So I think one thing that we would love to do more of would be something like an app or something like that. Make make Goldfish better for use on phones. Um, but that's really on Richard's end, so I can't speak to too much on, on that. Content-wise, it's kind of just keeping up with the ever-changing magic world, uh, more products, different formats. There's always something new. But so it's kind of wait and see, see what Wizards does next, and then react to that to some extent. Yeah. What's the most exciting thing to, for you for what you think is going on for kind of next in Magic then? Because like you said, there's lots of things that are changing all the time. There's been a lot of things going on lately. We could put the Luris band being number one on the list of exciting things happening, I think, to all of us, even though I, I did like to play with Luris quite a bit, but I, I recognize when I have a problem. Um, the, but like, what, what's been piquing your interest as far as Magic uh, in the immediate future? Oh, boy, there's a couple different things here. One is the sets this year are really, really awesome. I'm super hyped for going back to Brothers or going back to Dominaria. want to see how they execute this new Capenna thing, which is just really different than anything they've done before. The, other the thing art is, direction's amazing for New Capenna oh, so far, I feel yeah. like, too. I saw the, the collector's box, an yeah. image of that the other day, and I was like, this is beautiful. Like, the typography's great. You know, I tell this story occasionally. I, I applied to be uh, the design director of, of Magic like 12 years ago. Somehow I wrote a cover letter. It got to the right person and I got a phone interview. I, of course, I, it didn't happen. But I was like, I was like, 
there's so many so many things you all could do blah 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 and then yeah they they were like we're good. We're going to find somebody in the industry. I was like, okay, so you don't like me because I worked on, I work on banks, you know, not, <laughs> not games. So like, I understand, but, um, but like the stuff that they're doing with the visual design there, I think is great. A new Capenna, like you said, a new setting, this kind of different thing. And the, the art direction just looks really good. I am, I'm, oh. more, I'm excited for it almost just for that reason alone. But. Yeah, uh, me, me too. The art that we've seen so far is really, really spectacular. And the whole idea of like, kind of a modern urban set is really different than anything we've seen before. So I'm excited for that. The other thing I'm really excited for and really hopeful for is a uh, hopefully organized play coming back. Even though I'm not someone who loves to go grind tournaments and do the whole travel thing. I love watching, <laughs> watching magic. I love watching tournaments. I miss coverage and I have really high hopes. They're doing an organized play stream. I think a week from tomorrow and I have really high hopes that we're going to see a lot of that stuff coming back. Now that we're kind of getting a little bit through the pandemic, at least, or heading more in the right direction there. And uh, you have Huey now running a lot of this stuff at Wizards. So I'm really, really hopeful that we're going to see some good news there. And a lot of the stuff that I miss, even though I'm not a you know a pro player, really. And I know that the pro players and everyone who loves that aspect of Magic have missed. So I'm really hopeful we're going to see a lot of that coming back. I think you're a pro player. Just you've redefined <laughs> what it means to be a pro player. <laughs> Right. In a way, you're on the cutting edge. I, I constantly hear sometimes like on the Arena Deckless podcast, Brian and, and Jerry will talk about like the future of being a pro player is being a content producer, too. And I feel like you certainly thread that needle, even if you're not grinding challenges or yeah. CG cons. I mean, that's that's probably true. I'm definitely a pro magic person. Like I do this for a living. So uh, I mean, and I guess that's mostly playing magic. So I guess in a weird way, I am, I guess, a pro player, even though I'm not, you know, playing pro tours or whatever. <laughs> So speaking of where, how do you brew when you think about, <laughs> about brewing? So it's funny. Cause like the, the point of view of our podcast is we are non brewers. We've done one episode, I think out of the 160 that we have where we set, where we were all kind of like, let's, let's brew with some new cards. And those are, that's not even brewing. That was like, let's adjust some existing decks to fit new cards. We tend to be people who react when you're thinking about making a new deck or like how, how does that work for you a lot of it is really okay here's a new card that i find interesting or in some cases an old card that i find interesting what can we do with this card well what if we go all in on trying to make this card as good as it can be and trying to find the pieces to actually make that happen and then just seeing what happens you never know mm. sometimes you do this and you end up with a pile that can hardly win a game other times you end up with some surprisingly good decks that end up actually being real decks that people play i've never really been one of the the tuners I, i'm more of the put the idea out into the world and then see what happens with the other people like if they like the idea they can do the fine tuning and all that kind of stuff uh so i've always kind of been more on the i think the big picture side of things when it comes to brewing but it's really it's really kind of as simple as that like here's a card i like let's see what happens if we build a deck around it and focus on making as good as possible and we'll see what happens how do you capture the ideas of cards that you like? Like, you know, because that happens at all different times of the day. Like, do you write it down? Are you constantly just throwing cards into goldfish and brewing decks around? So you just have lists or kind of how does that work? Uh, it's mostly mostly mental. I don't really have like a physical list of like mm -hmm. the next card that I'm going to. But I do kind of have like a mental, a new set will come out and I'll kind of look through it and have kind of a mental list of like, okay, this is something I want to try and I could do this with this. And in this format, maybe this could work there. And then I kind of work my way through those ideas. And then the next one, the set comes out, we do it again. That's awesome. I mean, it's so, it's, it's so interesting just to be able to be like, you know, wake up every day, kind of, and be like, we're doing something new today. Like yeah. that's, that's an incredible thing that I think a lot of people don't realize how hard that is to just execute. And you've been doing it for years, you know what I mean? So that's, it's that's impressive. There's definitely ups and downs because you never know. Some days you come away from it feeling really good and things kind of worked out. Other days you lose 20 matches and you're like, oh, my God, what a what a day. I just <laughs> lost every game today. But uh, tomorrow, tomorrow's coming. We'll try again. What have I done? When you, when you have a new idea, do you immediately go to like recording it? Like, are you like, here's the idea and then I'm going to record it. And here's my here's the five. Oh, here's the not five. -0, here's the, <laughs> the lead. Here's the five. -0. Here it is. That, that's yeah, the league. Spike. I mean, yeah, that, that's yeah. ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So do you do you start capturing the content right away or do you tune it a little bit first and then go for it? It's usually 
usually pretty much right away. Not not immediately, immediately. I often try to get in like a couple of test matches just to make sure I'm not missing something. Sometimes you build a deck and you like space out and forget to put graveyard hate in your sideboard and you sure. lose to dredge and you're like, oh, I probably should add it. Then, you know, those relic of progenitus or ley lines or whatever. Uh, so I try to get in a couple of test matches, but I'm definitely not someone who like plays five leagues with the deck before I record. And then I record after doing a ton of practicing and testing and tuning with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's partly just because I make so much content. I just don't, I don't really have the time because uh, I'm onto the next deck and the next deck and the next stream. So can you share what your schedule looks like? Not, not your like daily schedule, but like weekly, how many, how many videos are you making? Like, I, I don't think I have a full, like big picture. So, so currently let's see. So I do right now two, two streams. I do three or four gameplay videos on the YouTube channel, a couple of podcasts. Um, com- the commander clash, I guess, doesn't really count as, is the gameplay. So one or two like commander things, depending on the week, sometimes I jump on Tomer's stream or whatever. So it's usually, oh boy, I, I usually assume I play like seven to 10 different decks a week in one form or another. I do want to hear what a sample daily schedule is like for you, in part because I think people might not always realize like what a day in the life looks like for a full-time content creator who essentially has to set their own schedule and, and some of the discipline that goes into that. Yeah, so I usually, I get up pretty early usually. I'm usually up eh, 6, 6.30, something like that, getting the coffee, getting ready, doing the the goldfish stuff for the day because I also do, as a content manager, I got to schedule everyone's articles and go to meetings and do that aspect of management kind of stuff too. So I do that kind of stuff. And then really between recording gameplay videos and uh, streaming on various days when I have a stream, pretty much from eight in the morning through five or six normally i'm pretty much recording content in one way or another either recording or editing or writing the article to go along with the content and then some days it's uh seven or eight or on thursdays i stream until like eight or eight thirty so it's it's just long days full of magic but i really like playing magic so it doesn't feel <laughs> it sounds long but it doesn't usually feel that long because I, i'm doing something that i really love doing yeah I mean, it just, it's funny how much it sounds just like a normal, like that's a work day, right? Like that's, that's what a lot of people's work days sound like. It's just, you know, I think it's good to just have people realize that like, it's a job and the effort that goes into it, you know, fits in the vague shape that a job kind of fits in as well, right? You're working that many hours, you have meetings that you have to talk to, you got to coordinate with people, you get on Zoom and you're like, I don't want to get on Zoom right now. Like, I think that's that's fascinating because, you know, one thing um, that I think a lot of people don't realize about this kind of cr- creation life is like you have to do it every day. Like that's oh. that's the thing that's hard about it. It's not something that you just dip your toe in. It's not something that you feel inspired. You, like people don't feel inspired to create every day when they're creators. Sometimes you just got to like push through mentally and keep keep making stuff partially because you love it. And you know that there's going to be good ideas that come out of it on the other side because it's work, right? Making stuff is is work. Yeah, and definitely that's very true. And some weeks, uh, there's like every week I do Against the Odds is one of the series or Budget Magic or Munch Brew. And every Wednesday, Against the Odds is going up. And sometimes you got a really great idea and you're super like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Other times you're like, oh no, like this deck isn't working out. What am I going to do? So it does have a lot of real job aspects to it, even though like I'm super lucky because a lot of that job is playing Magic, which is amazing. But it is kind of a real job the way it's structured for the most part yeah got deadlines you gotta make all that kind yeah, of stuff. got deadlines and meetings and and all that fun stuff yeah i did have one more mtg goldfish technical question that i've always been eager to ask you how does the deck scraping work in terms of just like you know the mtgo deck list go up after every league dump or tournaments is it all automated these days I know it's all automated as far as like technical aspects. I have no idea. You'd have to ask Richard, but it is. Yeah, there's there's no one that's sitting there and typing out every deck list. Only Wizards does that. I think they have someone sitting there and and typing out all their deck lists, but no, we do it automatically. I I think there's someone doing it too. I think there's someone that picks like recently when I I was talking about how we went through a 5-0 deck dump a couple weeks ago and there was one burn deck that was in the 5-0 
dump, which is normal, right? Because there's not yeah. that there's not mo- that much variation in modern burn. But the deck that was in there was M Hayashi's burn deck that had four reinforced Ronin instead of four Goblin Guide. And I'm like, this wasn't picked randomly yeah. to go in here. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, there's spicy one. Yeah. There's probably a hundred burn decks that five owed in, in this three days or whatever, and they picked that one. I mean, that's what I would have picked. If that was my yeah. job, I would have picked the the more interesting one, probably. So. Yeah, yeah. You ha- yeah, exactly. So, Seth, although you say that no one's actually writing down the deck names, sometimes it seems like someone has to go into f- and fix it, right? Because, for instance, if you go on the, the modern metagame, like, all the decks have names. If you go yeah. on to certain other metagame pages, it's just sometimes just, like, a collection of colors. Is, is someone doing, like, cleanup occasionally? Yeah, so so my understanding of how the actual deck system works is someone put in the names to begin with. Richard, and now we have uh, someone else that helps us that does a lot of random stuff on the site. One of the things they do is the deck naming. So someone has to put the initial name in there, and then the algorithm should recognize a deck that's similar enough and put it under the right heading. But occasionally, for whatever reason, that doesn't work, and then you got to go in manually and change the name or update the name or sometimes decks are pretty similar and it's like one key card like four color modern decks versus four color obnath is one of them and the algorithm doesn't always recognize the differences so you got to separate that stuff out but most of it's automated but yeah there's definitely some some manual cleanup that goes into it too this is why computers will never be better than us at magic (laughs) yeah they might be better than us at poker. I don't know if you follow any of that writing, Seth. But well, yeah. I haven't. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a bunch of different people working on AI that plays poker to the extent that like, there's a study from three or four years ago where somebody solved uh, heads up no limit. Like they started with that, and they're like, there's always the computer always picks the best strategy. And so as it's gotten bigger and bigger, there's computers that are able to to do more complex games with more people or more stakes, and so. Um, interesting a lot of the heads up no limit world is basically solved and so the people who play that against each other now they study with computers in between matches to be able to see what they should have done and so it's kind of like chess in that way yeah. and so they're they're working working towards that but um hopefully hopefully it's not coming for magic for a while i think we got we got so many variables even like compared to poker like there's just because there's so many decks and cards that could theoretically be there it seems right. like magic is going to be a tough game for ai to crack but i i agree but i'm not a doctor so yeah me me either <laughs> let's talk about modern for a second you mentioned that it is your favorite format it's basically the format we primarily cover sometimes we dip our toes into pioneer or historic or mm-hmm. you know if there's a flavor of the week we'll touch on it but we always go back to the modern well what are you liking in the format now? Like post Luris ban, it's going through a, a shift. It doesn't feel like it's a monumental shift per se, but what do you think is good or interesting or maybe even underplayed? Oh, so so lately I've been playing some uh, some grief blink style decks, which I found to be I think those decks are are really good. The kind of uh, scam scam style decks, I guess, where you get four thought seizes by turn two, and that beats most people. <laughs> I think that uh, Primeval Titan decks are probably like some of the best decks in the meta right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if once the shakeout finishes, that we see some sort of Amulet Titan deck be like maybe the best deck in the meta. Um, as far as underplayed decks, hmm. Ah, that stuff. I play so many. It's really hard because I play so many like tier three janky brews and I get excited about them and they do cool things. But then like one out of 10 of them or whatever actually end up being like legitimate, you know, threats to the metagame. I mean, Um, certainly I think that if you think about decks that I feel like started with stuff I saw on your site, a lot of them had to do with Blood Moon (laughs) at different points (laughs) in time. Like that Turbo Blood Moon deck, I think actually turned into some. There's a lot of people who are dedicated to those mono red decks in modern still. Uh, before before Simeon Spirit Guide got banned, that was yeah. like actually like a legit strategy. And I think out of all the decks that I feel like sort of responsible for, I think that's the one that I look back on most fondly is like modern Blood Moon Prison or Mono Red mm-hmm. Prison, whatever you want to call it. And definitely got a lot worse once uh, Simeon Spirit Guide went away. People still do play it. I still play it on occasion. It's different now, uh, a little bit slower, but it still can be successful. And I do think Blood Moon's in a pretty good place in the meta right now with Primeval Titan decks on the rise. Tron, I play more often now that Loris is banned than I did when Loris was there. So I don't think it's a bad time, even though like Paseju's kind of a problem for Blood Moons. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense for 
maybe what's the next Luris? Like, is there anything that maybe is borderline problematic that people were ignoring because Luris was sucking all the air out of the room? I mean, so literally maybe like Yorion or something like I hate the companion mechanic. I wish they would just get rid of the whole mechanic. Like that would be my ideal solution. Just like get rid of the whole thing. I don't know if Yarion can ever be problematic in the way Luris was because it doesn't push so many cards out of the meta. Like one of the big issues with Luris is that you can play Liliana. You can play Season Pyromancer and Rager Cap. There were so many of these really sweet cards that just really didn't see play because everyone wanted to meet Luris as a restriction. Yarion kind of oddly takes you in the other direction where it, oddly makes more cards playable because you got to get 80 cards in your deck so i don't know if yarian will be as actively harmful to the meta as is loris was but i still think that's a card we're going to see like metagame percentages like taking up taking up and i wouldn't be surprised if when we look back a year from now it's close to where loris was i could see 20 plus percent 25 percent of decks being yarian decks as far as like individual like non-companion cards though it's probably something for Modern Horizons too. Like Ragavan still comes up, Urza Saga still comes up. Uh, in a lot of ways, I don't know if you're watching the the Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns had to like go to the doctors and he had so many diseases they were all like <laughs> mashed together and they couldn't actually get into his body and that's why he was still alive. In some ways, that's what Modern feels like. You have all these really busted Modern Horizons two cards, but they all like oddly sort of even each other out and make for an okay meta even though a lot of the individual cards are like super pushed mm-hmm. stan loves the simpsons reference for what it's worth now that's true yeah definitely i i also love ragavan like <clears throat> I, i've got four like the fancy full art versions in this box that i'm holding up that the listeners can't see I mean, uh, the other one, it, the other one would be Primeval Titan. That's a card that for years has come up as like the second tier of bannings, but then something else always takes the spotlight and gets banned instead. Mm-hmm. And then Primeval Titan like comes back to the top of the meta and then something else becomes slightly more broken and gets banned. So somehow it keeps dodging. I don't know how it keeps dodging, but sooner or later, like Amulet or Titan or something. I think is going to be the card people hone in on whether or not it's this iteration of modern or like the next one after something else gets banned, who knows, but that is a card that I think to keep an eye out on. Yeah. I was going to say, this is a safe space. You can say primeval Titan if you want to (laughs) with us. We're not, we're not going to fight you on that one. We're we're famously not Titan players here. Um, The um, yeah. The last card that I feel like has been banned out of that deck was once upon a time. If I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of like, been out of a lot of decks right yeah they just complained about it the most yeah (laughs) yeah i mean those those strategies are they're really good especially because of urza saga now too making the amulet so much more consistent it feels like they just always have amulet titan by like turn three or turn four now and cool i don't know I don't know if it'll stick around in modern forever, but really, since Lurus has been banned, I've had a lot of fun in modern. I it has been a joy to lose to Liliana's and lose to Bloodbraid Elves and all these three drops that just four drops that just weren't around before. So I've been having a blast since Lurus got banned a couple of weeks ago. We're um we're going to Dallas in a couple in a couple of weeks for SCG Con. Um, some of us are. Stan is a maybe. We'll we'll know by the time this episode posts. If you, if you're going to call your shot, what deck would you say we should take? one of us oh hmm so i would probably try to get you to play a blood moon deck to beat the primeval titan decks uh might not be the wisest choice i don't know if that would lead to you winning if i was gonna go i would probably play a a grief ephemera deck personally i think those decks are really good i think they got good matchups against a lot of the top tier decks a little bit of consistency issues sometimes but Mm -hmm. when you run well with that deck it's uh, a lot of times feels unbeatable awesome i do have those I have yeah. grief. Don't threaten me with a good time, Seth. I'll play Blood Moons any day of the week. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm I'm all in for that. I you know I feel like every time I win, it's because of a Blood Moon in paper. So, one thing that I've always been impressed by is your ability to cover practically every format. And though you mentioned that Modern is the one you always go back to, maybe your favorite, you still produce a ton of Commander content. And I, and I want to tread very lightly here. It's known by our listeners that we're not really commander fans per se. Like I just have one group of friends who I'll occasionally play it with. And I've always found like commander content kind of perplexing just because like hundred card singleton deck, like consistency is just this puzzle. That's so tough to crack. And I, there's so much personality that goes into those decks. Do you feel like commander is almost a 
for lack of a better word, a necessary evil if someone is eager to, you know, gain an audience or maybe even make money producing magic content? Or is it something that just like, because so many people love it, it is in fact fun enough that people enjoy doing it. And there's something special about Commander that other formats don't capture. I think it's the the latter, honestly. I don't think you need to make Commander content to be successful doing content or anything like that. Um, I, For me, Commander fills a niche really it actually kind of takes me back to when i first started playing casual magic and you had a bunch of people hanging out with your friends at the kitchen table that's what commander is for me and that's something when i play modern i'm looking at blood moon you i'm looking at thought seizure four times by turn one with my grief if i can like i want to beat you as bad as possible win as much as possible but commander i don't know if you ever played like mario party commander is like the mario party of magic formats it's like you get together with your friends you're telling jokes you have some brews or whatever you like to do and and just have a good time commander is the perfect format for that so that's why i like i treat it like it's its own game almost for me commander is like its own game you have all the 60 card formats where you're trying to be competitive and trying to win and then commander is just really its own thing that's separated from all other formats in my mind and probably we have it to thank for much of the popularity of magic right now i think personally i mean at least yeah. at least an equal part to any of the constructed formats in my mind i mean there was that tweak going around the other day about about the the search volumes associated oh, mm-hmm. with commander and all that stuff which is I, very not surprising to me yeah. as far as kind of who who's looking for what on google it, it, that's that's what it is but i think that the world of magic right now is really like a partnership <laughs> between those those people and a little bit of people who like to draft in there yeah. as well you know and then there's the people who just like to crack packs too but yeah i think commander really helped during all the pandemic stuff it's actually like a format that you can play over your webcam i think easier than like i don't think you can do a gp over a webcam or something but you can definitely get a bunch of people together to play commander games because it's not a serious thing it's not about winning it's just about having a good time but i think that I really, really think this is going to be a good year for 60 card formats. And I think we're going to see the pendulum like start to swing back in the other direction. Not that commander is going away because a lot of people love it. It's a great casual format, but I do think we're going to see more stuff for the, the 60 card crowd starting this, starting back up this year. So I'm pretty hopeful. We're going to see uh, the pendulum swing back in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Hopefully arena can help sustain and facilitate that. Cause I think that's kind of like the big question mark right now based on, some of those recent decisions that they've had with that platform and yeah. Economy management. Ah, yeah. Ugh. If only people could afford the cards or it would be a great way to play magic like that. Ugh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about the future of arena at this point. I'm not, I'm not as hopeful as I used to be. If you would have told me four years ago when they launched arena that people would be asking me how to get started playing on magic online and like for tutorials on magic online, I would not have believed you because everyone thought this was going to come in and just like take over digital magic. And it doesn't seem like that's really how it went. Arena certainly is a place, but uh, it hasn't lived up to, I think everyone's hopes and dreams. I'm going to make a t-shirt with that on it, Seth. (laughs) Arena certainly is a place. (laughs) It is that. Wow. I mean, I, yeah, we, we had like a, we've talked about, I mean, we've had a dalliance with, with arena when we, we tried to cover historic for a while before the mystical archives became part of Mm -hmm. it and before Mm -hmm. jumpstart and all that stuff. And it was, I was, I really enjoyed it then. And then, yeah, yeah, I really felt like, I mean, I love playing faithless looting. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like that kind of really cracked the, the format. And it's just never been the same since Mm -hmm. then it was fun for it helped us through like a patch of making you know making the podcast where we were less enfranchised and modern for a minute we still really like doing the show with each other and we're like well let's let's do this our our listeners really wanted us to cover historic so we did it right and it was fun and then one day we woke up and we were like maybe this isn't great or maybe it's not sustainable i think is what the real problem is with arena and i kind of didn't believe it for a while but now i'm very in that camp where i'm like where is this where is this going (laughs) Like, why, yeah. why are we doing this? Yeah. And, and when Dave says we woke up, he's referring to the very large California king bed that the three Dive Down co-hosts <laughs> share. And we also eat out of a big bowl of cereal. It's a lot like that Beatles movie. I think it's Hard Day's Night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you, do you have milk on your cereal? That's a real question. Of course. Whole milk. Oh. Lactose free. Y'all don't know how to eat cereal. <laughs> Wait, how do you no. eat your cereal? No, you got you to have milk. On, no milk on that. It gets soggy. It gets soggy. 
You can't put milk on your cereal. Milk on the side. Milk on the side's okay, but you can't put it directly on. Dude, I used to be like that, and then I learned to like <laughs> milk, and now it's like it's too dry without the milk. This is um, not how I expected this to go. Yeah, no, no. I, I thought everyone knew this. Everyone makes fun of me for for my strange eating habits. Mostly, mostly that one. That's the biggest one. But <laughs> Stan, do you have any strange eating habits you would share? Oh, I hate tomato soup and tomato juice. Oh. Love oh, tomatoes. V8. Oh, V8's yeah. the worst. I had yeah. that when I was a kid. I cannot drink V8. <clears throat> I, I like to put cream cheese on hot dogs. Come at mm-hmm. me. Wow. Wait, cream cheese? Yeah. Put a cream cheese on hot dog. I'm going to have to try that. I'm more of a ketchup guy, but that... Yeah, I don't put it with ketchup. Like, it's just sort of mind. like... Yeah, I like a cheese dog. I think <laughs> it can it can work with chili, too. Like, if you like a little chili with, a, with it. But, uh, yeah. All right, we sh- now we've shared. Now we're bonded yeah. in strange food, so <laughs> yeah. we're even. I, I put salsa on my hot dogs, actually. That's like, salsa. Oh, that, that doesn't sound that. That's not that far out. That sounds actually kind of good. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Wow, this hour it flew by um, in the best way possible. Okay, before we go, Seth. Yes. You and I have something in common, other than our love of magic. Mm-hmm. My favorite band is Ween. Really. And I've seen on Twitter, we, we've talked about this ever so briefly, that you also like Ween. Uh, Ween, Ween is one of my all-time favorite bands, too, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Chocolate and Cheese is actually one of your favorite albums of all time as well. Um, I just saw Ween live over the weekend. They were in Chicago. They played some songs from Chocolate and Cheese. Ah, oh, so jealous. I've been wanting to see them live since it has it's been since the pandemic started. I'm hoping they're coming to Atlantic City in june and i might try to make a weekend trip down there so you got to do it they put on a fantastic show oh this show's so good do you have a favorite era of ween because there's for people who don't know ween there's two eras right there's just the duo where it's just like two dudes in a four track and and it's really it's kind of drugged out it's like really experimental and then they get a full band and it gets a lot poppier and polished so so i started with the poppier ween but then I kind of backtracked to four to four track Ween, mm-hmm. uh, and now I actually really love like Pure Guava and some of like those earlier albums are really really good. Uh, but Chocolate and Cheese always that's how I learned about Ween. I, I went to a record store in uh, in Denver. They had this big record store when I was living out there. Uh, had no idea who Ween was, and Buenos Tardes came on on the speakers, and it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. And I went and talked to whoever was working there. I was like, "What is this song? Like, who is this band?" And I bought a Ween album, and I've been a Ween addict ever since. So I think the newer era, just because of that, like, and I think the Mollusk is uh, like just so so good. That's like pro- actually probably their best album. Chocolate and Cheese is my favorite, but uh, that that album is just so amazingly good. But the early stuff has grown on me. When I first heard the early stuff, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is for me. But mm-hmm. now I can appreciate both eras, uh, both eras of Ween. What about oh. for you? Which one do you prefer? So Pure Guava is also one of my favorites of all time. Um, Because they're my favorite band, it's almost like picking your favorite kid. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, it feels kind of wrong. You're going to be able to pick your favorite kid when somebody asks, Stan. Don't let anybody (laughs) lie to you. (laughs) Ask me off mic later, I'll tell you. I only have one, so it's it's an easy answer. That makes it easy. (laughs) You know, it might just be Quebec. I think it's Oh. It's their second to last album i almost feel like it's this like magma opus yeah just like so so many beautiful songs it has my favorite ween song the argus on there um which was a, a white whale for me so i've seen ween like almost 10 times i don't i don't do jam bands per se but like i travel I to either. see ween like i'm one of those i don't people. either i don't i don't really like jam music either but ween is like the exception i, I don't are they even a jam band it's hard to even describe what ween is as a band because there's so many different genres and yeah They're, i don't you really know, think of them as a jam band but i guess if you call them that i'm not gonna fight you over it seth here's my hot take okay i think, I think ween is the second coming of the beatles I can I can kind of see that. I can right? kind of see that. You got all the different genres and sounds and yeah. They're so innovative and like they have two primary songwriters that have very yep. unique personalities and they like will have their own songs and they come together in creative ways and it's it's almost like a Paul and John dynamic except it's Dean and Gene Ween. <laughs> yeah. And a lot more like middle school humor thrown in. Totally. Totally. <laughs> the Beatles might have lasted longer if they had more humor. Let's be honest. That's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've seen the, I saw the documentary. Ooh. 
Fine. Uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lena, Lena, I think, has a good time. They always seem like they're they're having a good time, at least. We got to wrap this one up. Seth, thank you again so much. This was such a blast. I knew it was going to be fun, and somehow you managed to exceed all of our expectations. Oh, it was super fun. Thanks so much for asking me. And uh, yeah, anytime. We'll do it again sometime if you want to. It was a blast. Absolutely. Great to catch up. And that wraps up the latest bonus episode of The Dive Down. Thank you again to Seth for joining us this week. This was incredible. If this is your first time listening to our show, make sure you subscribe to get the podcast every week, whenever it comes out. We usually drop on Wednesdays or Thursdays, sometimes on Fridays. Mostly talk about modern, but we occasionally touch on other formats as well. You can find us wherever podcasts are served. But if you use Apple or Spotify, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to our show, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word. You can email the dive down at gmail.com. You can even support us with Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring our show. If you sign up for Mana Traders, you can get 15% off your first two months of the Magic Online rental service with promo code THEDIVEDOWN2022. You can also use that code over at Barrister and Man for all of your soaps and grooming needs. Use promo code THEDIVEDOWN2022 to get 15% off your first order there. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, go catch a goldfish. Mm-hmm.